everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 57, and I know I told you guys in the last episode that we were going to be talking about chronic renal failure, dialysis, and renal transplant in the next episode. And to be honest, I worked on it for a while and I just wasn't feeling it. I think I was just tired of that topic because I had to do such a giant case study on it for my advanced pathophysiology course. So instead, I got an Instagram message or a Facebook message or an email, I can't remember, from one of you guys that asked if we could talk about heart failure and especially differentiating between left and right-sided heart failure. So that is what we are going to talk about today. I promise we'll talk about dialysis and renal transplant someday, but right now I just needed to do something that got me a little bit excited. So I thought I'll do what gets you guys excited. And for us this week, it is heart failure. And before we dive into that, I know a lot of you are waiting and waiting and have been emailing me, asking me when the next batch of the nursing student planners are going to be out, and they are on pre-sale right now. So this episode will probably launch mid-March. They are on pre-sale until the end of March, so you'll get special pre-sale pricing, and then we start shipping in early April. So if you go to my website, straightanursingstudent.com, on the top menu, just go shop, drop down to planner, and then there's a link that'll take you to the Etsy shop. So it's super easy, and they are amazing. This time we have four covers to choose from. We have the monthly tabs, and this one runs from July 2019 to June 2020. Okay, so let's get to talking about heart failure. Some key concepts that are going to help you really understand heart failure is one, that the heart is a pump, and you guys already know that. And in order for the heart to work well, that pumping, that contraction action must be optimal. And in heart failure, the heart's ability to pump effectively is impaired. So that's why we have a lot of the problems we have with heart failure. And also the other key concept is how the pathway of blood flows through the heart. And that will really help you figuring out is this right-sided or is this left-sided? So what causes heart failure? Lots of things, okay? Um, Often, heart failure is secondary to a myocardial infarction that has done some pretty extensive damage to one or both of the ventricles. A lot of the patients that I saw in my advanced physical assessment course as an outpatient in this cardiac care clinic had heart failure because they had had an MI in the past. You can also get heart failure because your valves aren't working well. You could have mitral or aortic valve stenosis that can lead to heart failure or mitral or aortic valve insufficiency that leads to heart failure. And we could talk about heart valves in a whole other episode, so maybe we'll do that at some point as well. 
You could also have arrhythmias that reduce ventricular filling time, typically the tachyarrhythmias. Bradycardia can cause a reduced cardiac output and a pulmonary embolism, which would elevate pulmonary artery pressures. And if you don't know what that means yet, don't worry, you will learn that in your advanced med surge class. But these pulmonary artery pressures go up and that leads to right-sided heart failure and even things like anemia, pregnancy, infection, emotional stress, these can all create conditions in which heart failure can occur. But for the most part, yeah, I'm going to say most part, it's due to an infarction that has happened and the heart has been damaged from that. But just know that there's lots of reasons. So let's now talk about that blood flow pathway. So if you know your blood flow pathway, you can really think about right-sided versus left-sided heart failure. So I'm going to go through this a couple of times. The first time I'm going to go through it, the super basic version. And on the second time through, we'll add in a few extra things, okay? So for the basic version, blood comes from systemic venous circulation and it goes into the right atrium, then into the right ventricle. Then the blood is ejected from the right ventricle into the lungs for oxygenation. From the lungs, that oxygenated blood then enters the left atrium, then the left ventricle, and that left strong ventricle contracts, sending the blood up and out into systemic circulation. Okay, so that's the basic version. Now let's talk about it with a little bit more detail. Blood will come from systemic venous circulation through the inferior and superior vena cava into the right atrium. Now it's going to go through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle. The blood is then ejected from the right ventricle up through the pulmonary valve into the pulmonary artery and into the lungs for oxygenation. From the lungs, the oxygenated blood then passes through the pulmonary vein into the left atrium, then through the mitral valve into the left ventricle. That left ventricle will contract, sending the blood up through the aortic valve into the aorta and out into systemic circulation. Okay, so now you can kind of see how if there's a valve problem, it could cause some issues further down the road. So simple recap to review, blood from the system goes to the right side of the heart, to the lungs, to the left side of the heart, back out into the system, okay? I know you guys knew that, but maybe it's been a little bit since you had your physiology class, so I just wanted to review. I sometimes like to explain the flow of blood through the heart like cars driving uphill. Um, As the cars are going uphill, you know where they're going and where they are, But if their engines stop working, they're going to back down the hill, right? So you also need to know where they've been. So think about that concept. It might help you as you think through where has the blood flow been, and then you can figure out left-sided and right-sided heart failure. As we go through some examples, this will make a little bit more sense. So let's talk about left-sided heart failure first, and let's just think about that flow of blood, right? What hill are the cars driving up? If the left ventricle doesn't work well, 
Okay, the blood is going to pool in that ventricle and it's going to eventually back up. So where does it back up to? Where had it been right before it got into the left ventricle? The left atrium, okay, perfect. And then where? Where was the blood before it got to the left atrium? It was in the lungs, very good. So the blood from the left ventricle backs up into the left atrium, then into the pulmonary veins and capillaries. So this patient will present with shortness of breath. They could be a little confused because they have low oxygen levels. They're not getting good gas exchange. They may even appear a little bit cyanotic. And as this pressure in that pulmonary vasculature continues to rise, what do you think happens to the oncotic pressure in those capillaries? Okay, it's going to rise, right? So as that oncotic pressure rises, it pushes sodium and water out of the vasculature into the interstitial lung tissue. And this is what causes pulmonary edema. So at this point, if your patient has pulmonary edema, you're going to see their oxygen saturation levels will be lower. They will have a lot more trouble breathing, and they may have a cough that produces a pink, frothy sputum. So I'll be honest, I've only seen that a few times, but it is a hallmark sign of pulmonary edema. So when you get your exams and your NCLEX, that's going to be one of the triggers to you to think left-sided heart failure and pulmonary edema. So think pink, frothy sputum. They'll be tachypnic, very short of breath, oxygen saturation levels low. You'll be able to hear crackles, adventitious lung sounds, and likely they'll be anxious because they're not getting enough air. You're going to have to do something to help this guy out, but we're going to get to that in just a bit. One thing to know about patients who have left-sided heart failure is that when they lie down, that fluid in their legs is passively going to flow up into the inferior vena cava and into the heart. So that heart is already overloaded. And that's why when patients who have left-sided heart failure lie down, they don't breathe so well and they end up sleeping propped up on pillows. So a really great question to ask patients is how many pillows do you sleep on at night or what position do you sleep in? So if the answer is, oh, I sleep on three to four pillows or I have to sleep in my recliner chair, then they likely have orthopnea, which is that shortness of breath that occurs when you're lying flat. So note that people can sleep propped up for lots of different reasons. It doesn't mean they have heart failure if they tell you they sleep propped up. Maybe they have GERD, maybe they have back issues, maybe they get headaches when they lie down. So don't jump to conclusions on that one finding, but just know that it is part of that whole picture that you'll take into account. So now let's move on and talk about right-sided heart failure. So maybe this patient had an MI in the right coronary artery and that right ventricle is not pumping effectively anymore. What is going to happen to this patient? So again, blood is going to collect in that right ventricle and then where will it go? You've got it. It's going to back up into that right atrium. So you're thinking about the flow of blood through the heart. Where does it back up to next? Your cars are on that hill and they're all drifting back because their engines aren't working. Where are they going to pile up? 
In this case, they're going to pile up in the systemic circulation. So a lot of times with right-sided heart failure, you'll see patients with jugular vein distension, also known as JVD, and high central venous pressure. And we'll talk about hemodynamic monitoring another time because that's a whole other topic. And if you haven't learned about central venous pressure, don't worry about it just yet. But just know that that JVD is a, is a clear sign that there's something going on, possibly with some right heart failure. And it's pretty easy to see clinically as well. The blood can also back up into the hepatic vein, causing congestion, the liver and spleen, and enlarged liver and spleen called hepatosplenomegaly. And just as a general rule, when organs are enlarged, they don't work that great. So this patient could have some problems with their liver. Their abdomen could be distended with that hepatic vasculature all congested. Their abdomen could be large, causing pain, causing shortness of breath, because it's hard to take a big deep breath when your belly's distended. There's just not a lot of space for your lungs. So again, we'll have that rising oncotic pressure in the capillary system causing edema. So in these patients with the right-sided heart failure, you're going to see that edema a lot in the legs and the ankles, the feet. You may see it in the abdomen, but this is that pitting edema that you've been learning about. So if you're looking at pitting edema, you're going to start looking at the feet, then the ankles, then the calves and the knees. You know, you're going to see how far up the leg it goes, and that can give you an idea of how bad their edema and their heart failure is. So one thing you should be aware of about heart failure is that failure of one ventricle can lead to failure of the other. So if your patient has left-sided heart failure and that backward flow of blood is significant enough, it can back all the way up eventually to the right side of the heart. So um, one of the things that's really interesting to know is that the most common cause of right-sided heart failure is actually left-sided heart failure. So I want to review a little bit, and you've got a patient, Mr. Oliver. Those of you who've been listening to my podcast for a while know that my cat is Oliver. So Mr. Oliver had a STEMI about three months ago, and now he's in your emergency room with some shortness of breath that he's had over the last few days. His heart rate is 120, respiratory rate 28, O2 saturation 90% on room air. He tells you he's had to start sleeping on two to three pillows at night and would often wake up with shortness of breath and have to sit up or even stand in order to relieve his symptoms, though standing would make him feel very dizzy. You listen to his lungs and hear pronounced crackles. So what type of heart failure, which side does Mr. Oliver have? So that fluid has backed up into his lungs. So is this left or right-sided? If it were right-sided, the blood would be backing up more into his systemic circulation. Let's say you look at his ankles, he has no pitting edema. But if it's left-sided, it's going to back up into those lungs. Do his symptoms sound like... They're coming from his lungs. Yes, they do. So Mr. Oliver is presenting with the signs of left-sided heart failure. Now, if you could get into Mr. Oliver's chart 
and you could see where his STEMI occurred. You would know which artery had been occluded and where the infarct occurred. Then you could even more accurately determine what part of the heart had malfunctioned. But even if without that information, just looking at his symptoms, you could feel pretty confident with your hypothesis that he has left-sided heart failure. So you put Mr. Oliver on a face mask, like an oxy mask, let's say, with six liters oxygen, and his O2 saturation comes up to 93%. He's hanging out, waiting for the doc to come assess him, and you go get busy with a code stroke that just came in. When you get back to check on Mr. Oliver, you notice he's He's got a little bit more work of breathing. He's working hard to breathe. His O2 saturation on six liters is now only 89%. What is happening? So maybe he's also coughing up some pink frothy sputum, okay, if you want a real textbook picture of this guy. So clearly, Mr. Oliver needs more than rest and oxygen, right? How are we going to treat him? And before we get to that, let's talk real quick about heart, how heart failure is even diagnosed in the first place. So for diagnostics for a patient with suspected heart failure, one of the key chemistry tests you'll get is called a BNP, brain natriuretic peptide. I can never say that word. That's why we call it a BNP because that's easy to say. So BNP is a hormone that is secreted from the ventricles when they are stretched. So if that ventricle has dysfunction and it has had that stretch, it's going to show up on the BNP test. Sometimes it'll be a pro-BNP. It just depends on how they're running the test. So be aware that both of these BNP and pro-BNP are highly sensitive for heart failure. So a negative result makes heart failure pretty unlikely. And a positive result means it's likely you need to look at the whole picture though. So you're going to get a BNP. And in Mr. Oliver's case, we would expect it to be pretty high. An ECG isn't always going to show heart failure. But if it is abnormal, then it does have a pretty high sensitivity for heart failure. It can also show signs of things that could have precipitated the heart failure or caused the heart failure, like a prior myocardial infarction. It can show an arrhythmia that could be part of heart failure, and it can show left ventricular hypertrophy. All of these things could be a part of your heart failure picture. A chest x-ray could be done on Mr. Oliver to show that his heart is enlarged. You would also see that pulmonary edema, and you can also see pleural effusions on a chest x-ray. Mr. Oliver may also get an echocardiogram, often just called an echo for short. This is going to show the structures and the function of the heart. You'll be able to see if there's any valve disorders or uh, wall motion malfunction. Basically, one of the key things you want to know from the echocardiogram as the nurse is how much blood is ejected from the ventricles with each contraction. This is called the ejection fraction. So a normal ejection fraction, or you may hear it called just an EF, is 50 to 70% with 60 to 65% being a pretty common normal range for people. Anything below 35 to 40 indicates pretty good heart failure going on. I think the lowest I've seen is like 15, and those patients typically don't do very well. 
So let's talk a little bit here about ejection fraction because you may hear people refer to heart failure as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or heart failure with normal ejection fraction. And it can get a little confusing, so I just wanted to clear it up. So if we're looking at the EF or the ejection fraction, what side of the heart are we really looking at? Are we honing in on here? Well, because we're looking at how much blood is pushed out of the left ventricle, we're looking at the left ventricle, right? So when we look at the left ventricle, there are actually two kind of subtypes of left-sided heart failure. There's systolic heart failure and diastolic heart failure. So if you recall, just real quick, systolic is the contraction phase the action phase, right, of the heart, and the diastole is the relaxing phase or the filling phase. So let's look at systolic heart failure, which you'll also possibly hear heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So again, remembering that during systole, the heart is contracting. So if you have failure in that systolic phase, then that contraction isn't working well. So of course, your ejection fraction could be reduced. So you'll often hear it called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And if somebody says that, you can realize, okay, that's systolic heart failure. Then there's also diastolic heart failure. You may hear it often called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or maybe heart failure with normal ejection fraction. So this has to do with the diastole phase in the cardiac cycle. This is that relaxation and fillings phase. So diastolic heart failure is present when the ventricles don't relax properly. So they don't fill properly. Those walls have become too stiff. So just a little aside on some other terms you may hear thrown around when you're talking about your patient's heart failure. So let's talk about the severity of heart failure. So heart failure is staged basically on the severity of the symptoms. So there's two different methodologies. The American College of Cardiology slash American Heart Association, they do their staging as an ABCD staging, and the New York Heart Association does their staging as one, two, four. And we don't need to go through what all of them are. Just know that higher letters and higher numbers mean the disease is more severe and the patient is having symptoms even when they're at rest. Okay, so now we've got Mr. Oliver. We want to go back and check on him and not forget about our patient. The doc finally comes in. She's been really busy tonight and she tells you that one of the quickest ways that you could help Mr. Oliver's heart failure situation here is to get rid of excess volume. So that often means giving diuretics. So you give Mr. Oliver 40 milligrams of furosemide. And since his O2 set's been kind of low, you guys go ahead and up his oxygen to 10 liters. His O2 saturation comes up to 95%. And he tells you he's, he, it's a little easier for him to breathe with that extra oxygen. So you hand him a urinal and tell him that it's about to start flowing. So about a half hour later or so, Mr. Oliver has voided about 600 mils. And his oxygen saturation looks like it's a little better. It's like 96%. Every now and then maybe it 
pumps up to 97. You're not gonna adjust the oxygen just yet. You leave it there. You gotta go take care of another patient that came in. This one has sudden onset chest pain. So when you come back and check on Mr. Oliver again, He's voided another 500 mils, and his O2 saturation is now 99% on 10 liters oxymask. So you can dial that oxygen back down. You pull it down to about six liters. His oxygen comes down to about 95. You're fine with that. He says he feels a little better. You listen to his lungs. The crackles aren't as pronounced. His coughing has stopped. His respiratory rate is down to 22. Heart rate, not nearly as tachycardic. He's at 105. You go, you do other things, you peek in on him every now and then, and in another hour, he has voided another 500 or so mils, and he says his breathing is much easier. His lung sounds are a lot better, much more clear, especially in those upper lobes. You transition him now to a nasal cannula at four liters and notice that his oxygen stays pretty solid at about 96%. His respiratory rate's only 20, his heart rate's 98. He definitely feels a lot better. He is going to get admitted to the telemetry floor because he is going to get that echocardiogram scheduled for the morning. So in the hospital setting, some other medications used to treat heart failure, kind of that acute um, exacerbation or acute onset, onset and the pulmonary edema that often comes with it are you could give drugs that increase the heart's contractility like digoxin. You could see milrinone, dopamine, or dobutamine given. Those would be, those last three would be for your very sick patient and those are ICU kind of continuous infusions. Um, vasodilators could increase cardiac output and an ACE inhibitor could decrease some afterload as well. Mr. Oliver is going to be on bed rest until his symptoms improve, until he can, uh, you know, move around without getting too short of breath, likely sitting in high Fowler's position to get the best lung expansion. And uh, most patients will be on some kind of supplemental oxygen. Sometimes patients will have to get BiPAP. If the face mask delivery systems aren't working that great or if the heart failure is really significant, the patient may even need to be intubated for a time. And then at discharge, we want to make sure that Mr. Oliver is on the appropriate medications to treat his heart failure. So often that's diuretics. Again, we want to get that fluid off. Possibly digoxin, but typically digoxin is used for patients who e whose EF is less than 40%. So we'll see what that echocardiogram shows. An ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker can help reduce systemic vascular resistance, provide possibly a little increase in cardiac output as well. And then a beta blocker, especially those cardioselective beta blockers, can give you a little higher of an ejection fraction and help reduce the left ventricle size and mass by reducing or preventing remodeling. Remember that big hearts do not pump well. We want to try to avoid that. Note that if a patient has asthma or COPD, they don't typically get placed on a beta blocker because it can cause bronchoconstrictions. We don't want that. 
Patient may also be on an aldosterone antagonist like spironolactone, which is also a potassium-sparing diuretic, which would be another way to get the fluid off and keep blood pressure down. Hydralazine is often used in conjunction with an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, or a loop diuretic like furosemide. Note that African-American patients don't always respond so well to ACE inhibitors, so they're often given hydralazine with an isosorbide dinitrate vasodilator. So just keep that in mind. And then if they are on a potassium wasting diuretic like ferrosamide, they may need potassium supplementation. You do want to be careful because ACE inhibitors can cause hyperkalemia. So just be aware of all the meds that your patient is on because a lot of times you could have some pretty significant electrolyte imbalances. So some other things that you could talk to Mr. Oliver about and give him education on before he goes home is that he will need to follow a low-sodium diet to keep his water retention under control. He may need to be on fluid restriction. It depends on how bad his heart failure is. You definitely want Mr. Oliver's blood pressure to be most likely below 120 over 80, and those are the American Heart Association guidelines. You're going to... Encourage Mr. Oliver to avoid alcohol and smoking, and you would like him to do some low intensity exercise as his symptoms permit, like walking is great. And you can also discuss with them that he may need supplemental oxygen at home. Again, it just depends on the symptoms and how often he has these exacerbations. So that is your short snapshot about heart failure, left side versus right side with a lot of other great information thrown in there. And I guess that's about it for today, guys. If you are having trouble with dosage calculations, I wanted to remind you guys that I do have my dosage calculations course live and if you go to the website, straightanursingstudent.com, there's this tab across the top for boot camp. Click on that, and there's a link that takes you right to the course. I expect, I know I've been saying this for the past six to eight months, but I expect to have the whole nursing school boot camp up this summer. Graduate school kind of put a kink in most of my plans. So that is my project to finish up this summer and get that ready for you guys. So again, take care, everyone. Thank you for spending your very precious and limited free time with me. I very much appreciate it and keep your questions and your comments coming because it makes me happy to know that this podcast helps you. Have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.